Hi, and welcome to the RCH Kids Health Info Podcast, the podcast for parents about common child health concerns. I'm Dr. Lexi Frydenberg, paediatrician and your host for today, and I'm joined by my colleague and good friend, Dr. Anthea Rhodes. We'll be talking about something that most parents can relate to, fussy eating. From the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne, this is the Kids Health Info Podcast. I'm really looking forward to this discussion, Anth, as even as a paediatrician and a mother, I've nearly pulled my hair out so many times when my kids just won't eat what I would like them to eat. Absolutely. I think for me, the the trickiest time has been the toddler years, and I know we'll talk about that a lot today. And I particularly think back to my third child who initially was a great eater, and everyone loves a great eater, particularly the grandparents love a great eater. <laughs> and then almost overnight, he wouldn't eat anything. It was like, no, 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 no. And everything went on the ground. Everything I prepared got thrown off the high chair, and he was he was really refusing most things I was offering to him. And it felt like it came out of the blue and I was tearing my hair out really trying to get him back eating anything which can sometimes lead to some some desperate measures. You're trying to work out why did this happen? Is there something wrong? Is there a medical reason for this? Often there's not. So we're going to focus more today on um, the toddlers rather than the babies. We've got a fabulous guest today, Dr. Kathleen McGrath, paediatric gastroenterologist here at RCH with a special interest in children and their nutrition. Hi, Lexi. Fussy or picky eating is such an issue for so many parents. It's so stressful. Parents often wonder, is my child eating enough and are they getting a balanced diet? Definitely. I I think that um, I always say, you know, for parents, being able to feed and and nurture and sustain their child is a very innate kind of almost the essential part of parenthood. Um, And if that doesn't go well or you take that away from a parent, so sometimes, you know, in less common situations where we have kids who can't feed for other reasons, then you're taking away a big part of that parent-child relationship. But it's actually the children who are responsible for choosing how much and where whether they eat. And I think that's really good to remember because I think we give ourselves so much guilt as parents, but we actually can't force a child to eat. Yeah, exactly. And forcing is actually the thing that you don't want to do. And so I think you have to see it as a relationship really where both parent and child both have a role and it's the kind of connections between those roles that leads to whether there's, you know, a successful kind of mealtime or not. And so as parents, we can't dictate everything, you know, kids need to learn to be independent. They need to learn how to make decisions and the way that they eat and the decisions they make around eating and feeding are part of that process of learning independence or autonomy or learning to control situations because it is something that they can have some control on and we need to sort of let them do that but also as parents making sure that you're providing um, a situation where the choices are healthy options you know. And that I guess Kathleen is why we often see as children come into that toddler age group the perfectly cooperative compliant eater like you know I was describing with my own son might suddenly become someone who's much more interested in making their own choices and that will be often about food. One of the things to know is that you know it's normal for appetite to vary it's normal for intake to vary particularly in toddlerhood and a healthy child who has a day where they don't eat as much or they might only eat a couple of foods that day, generally it won't affect their growth, it won't affect their overall health. In terms of how you know we approach it, one of the most 
key things is to not let that stress level or that stress bar go up too high. Yeah, because once that process starts and the stress bar goes up, then mealtimes become fraught with anxiety and it becomes a sort of very tense environment and that kind of feeds into this sort of sense of battle or, or defiance that sort of it's it deemed as when really kids are just wanting to, you know, often control a little bit of their life. So we can help provide situations where we kind of manage the environment within which they control. So, for example, often, you know, with my kids, it used to be like, um, you know, you can choose between this and this. And so you provide them, you know, the option for two different things. Do you want sausages or do you want bolognese for dinner? You know, it's not neither. It's one or the other. But yet they get a bit of choice in the situation. So they get to have a decision. And remembering that we're not supposed to be running a restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) So what about those kids, Kathleen, who say, I don't want sausages or bolognese. You know, I want X again. How do you suggest parents deal with that? Yeah, I think we've got to remember that, you know, when you provide a a plate or a meal, there's a few things there. And, And at the end of the day, you know, children can decide how much they're going to eat of what's provided. You don't want to get into a battle where you force them to eat. But in the same sense, if we continuously, you know, get in a cycle there where you provide them with a completely different meal because they don't like what's on offer, then then that again reinforces that that's a behaviour or, or a cycle that's going to happen again. And so next time they don't want something, you'll give them something else. And the time after, you, you know, they don't want something, they'll get something else kids see the way that, that we eat and, and the um, the way that the parents behave around food and the relationships that we have with food and um, to not make too big of a deal about it. So, you know, if that's what they decide, you've got to respect their decision and say, you know, you don't have to eat it all. I'd really like you to just try it. And, and that's sort of part of this graded introduction. Most kids, a lot of kids won't like something the first time it's given to them. It's a whole different thing that they've not kind of come across before. But with time, if it's sort of offered a few times and, and maybe they might sort of just touch it the first time or they might smell it but not eat it and, you know, then maybe the next time they'll give it a lick and then spit it out, that's okay. Let them do that. Let them go through that process where they're kind of um, getting used to something or adapting to something and then you'll find maybe the next time after that they might just take a little bite, yeah, yeah. and then they'll forget that they never liked it. <laughs> and I've, I often say to parents in clinic who come with this trouble that we know from some studies children sometimes need to try something 12, 13, 14 times before they'll actually eat it. So you've got to expose them to these foods a lot of times and that can feel like a lot. And as parents, if you're preparing something and then you go to all that effort and it doesn't even get touched, it can be really hard to actually keep up the energy and keep offering these things. It does. I think that's a really useful piece of information for parents to know though and not not feel alone that it's just them that you know they're trying to give the carrot and the child's not liking it you know absolutely and you know there are so many parents out there we're trying to make mealtimes fun we're trying to sit with our kids while they eat while we eat I know we've all you know probably had those plates where we've used our vegetables and made faces on the plates and tried to engage the kids in the food but there is some evidence that it actually helps getting kids to eat Yeah, and I think being at the table together where you can, and I know with a busy family myself and lots of people out there really struggle to find the time for the family to come together and eat, but if you do that, then that's a time where kids are actually being exposed to foods that you eat. They might only watch you eat them, but that's, you know, another time where they've seen it and they're thinking, all right, that's something that I might try next time. 
Yeah, and they're getting mum and dad, you know, or parents at the table, relaxed, kind of, you know, enjoying some conversation rather than just being busy in the kitchen, you know, doing your own thing. So sometimes, Kathleen, kids eat nothing. So perhaps you offer up the plate like you've suggested and there's a variety of things on there and you sort of, you know, we've all tried really hard, we've made a face, we're calm, we're trying to make it fun and we've given a couple of choices and they go, no, having nothing. And you're feeling a bit panicked. What should you do then? Yeah, I I think one thing to remember is that in most situations they haven't had nothing. So in most situations they have eaten through the day and this might just be the end of the day. And sometimes it's because they're tired or sometimes it's because they had a snack half an hour before dinner, um, you know, at someone else's house that you didn't realise or there's lots of different situations. And and most kids will be okay, you know, if they go to bed and they haven't eaten much. Um, I think, you know, you don't want to make a habit of, of... giving them something to replace the meal but you know I guess a glass of milk or something like that before bed can sometimes you know give them something Um, but I think it's about you know I guess you know being reassured that they'll be okay. And what about thinking now about nutrition so this is an area that you've got an interest and expertise in Kathleen and parents sometimes worry that their children aren't getting enough of the right things. So if they are fussy about foods, when do we need to worry that they're not actually going to get those essential vitamins and minerals? Yeah, it's a really good point. And and I guess it's hard to um, give an exact answer because dietary intakes vary a lot. I think, um, you know, a mix of different colours, a mix of different foods from different food groups is what you kind of aim for, you know. So it's not just about having a bit of each food group. They say, you know, these days the recommendations are to try and get as much sort of variety within those groups. So, um, But there are a lot of kids that, you know, particularly within the ages of two to six years of age, that that's not what they'll do, you know. And there's many a kid I'm sure we all know, you know, from our own experience as parents or... Um, you know, kids close to us that, you know, they survive on, a you know, maybe 20 foods or less for, you know, periods of time, short periods of time. But in general, a lot of foods these days have um, uh, things added to them. So, for example, um, they might have, you know, um, certain vitamins or minerals added to them. So, I guess we look at it in two things. If there's concerns about weight and children aren't gaining weight, then that's definitely a concerning sign or if they're losing weight, okay? And and growth issues should always prompt um, seeing someone for a medical review. If there's concern about the variety of the diet, then often it's a good place to just have a discussion and look at the, the different things contained within that diet. But there are many kids who have relative restriction you know for short periods of time that that are okay nutritionally so i know lots of kids who are certainly not eating a rainbow and in fact they're pretty much only eating anything that's white Mm. we've all heard of the white diet so it's kind of all carbs chicken nuggets chips bread pasta if it's not white they don't eat it is that okay look i think that What I always try and do with kids like that is to find, even if there's one vegetable or one fruit that they like, you know, and and usually if you sort of go through and try and, you know, talk about some common examples, you know, carrot sticks are often a favourite, cucumber because it's relatively got a, you know, fairly bland flavour, peas, you know, corn, there's often one vegetable that they like and 
And so it's sometimes if it is just one or two vegetables that they like, it just means cooking it more often, you know. And, and to us as adults who like, you know, some people like a lot of variety, it might seem completely boring to have peas every single day. But if that's the vegetable that they like and you want to get some sort of, you know, vegetable intake, then just cook the peas every day and offer a second vegetable every day or every second day, you know, to try and give them that opportunity to, to experience or, or sort of see something different. But you can rely on the fact that they'll be eating the peas. And they're probably not still going to be eating only peas every day eventually exactly. when they're an adult. Exactly. So they will grow out of yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think if parents are worried about their child's nutrition, what would you recommend they do? So one of the most, there are some really good websites, which I think that some of the resources will be attached to this um, podcast um, for parents, so raising raising children and things like that. Um, but often just having a conversation with your GP or your maternal nurse is really useful, particularly in the preschool years. Um, maternal nurses have a lot of kind of training on on approaching kids who might are deemed to be fussy with their eating or what how many times a day should a two-year-old be having dairy and things like that a lot of those common questions that parents might have your maternal nurse can be a really helpful person to talk to about that kind of thing and if we are worried about the nutrition often as gps or pediatricians we do blood tests we check for specific nutrients and we can replace those nutrients so i think if you really are worried your child's not getting enough calcium or enough iron it's really important to have that chat with your health professional. Yeah, it is. And, and one of the most useful people is a paediatric dietitian or a dietitian that's sort of trained for, you know, the kids that where it's not just a transient phase, it's lasting for, you know, a long period of time. One thing that we learned recently on some research through the RCH poll was that around 40% of parents believe that toddlers need special or different food from the rest of the family for them to sort of grow well and develop well. In fact, that's not really true, is it? They, they can eat what the family's eating. Completely, yeah, completely. And an ideal situation, you know, which unfortunately today there's lots of people with different, you know, dietary intolerances, restrictions and things, but you just, you know, to have everyone sit down and eat the same meal is what you're aiming for if you can. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of marketing out there that probably drives these beliefs. There's lots of things you can buy now that perhaps suggest they're going to give your child a boost or, you know, have added special things in them. But a lot of the time that's really just a marketing employee to get parents buying products and regular family food is going to be just fine. Although the one question we often get asked is, should my child be on a multivitamin? So they're not a great eater, they're really fussy. Will that help? What do you advise families? I think with the children's multivitamin supplements, they're often fairly low doses. And if you've got a child and you're worried about the variety in their diet, there's probably not a lot of harm from having a children's multivitamin. Whether they need it or not, I think is a different question. And I guess I would say if you're asking yourself that question because you really are concerned, then probably should be go and have a conversation with a health professional about it and just sort of touch base. And, and you know, often what they'll do is just ask you what they've had for breakfast, lunch, dinner and snacks over the last few days. And, and you get a pretty good sense then I think of of if there's you know enough variety there. So Kathleen what about juices and milk? One thing is that children should not fill up on on drinks so I think that if you want them to have a juice and they're at a party you know then that's fine but you know I would 
advocate for water being the main drink that kids drink. Um, and, and really offering food first is the most important thing because then they're not filling up on sort of very high sugar-rich kind of juices that might fill them up. Or, or for younger kids, often they fill up on a massive glass of milk and then they don't feel like eating at mealtimes. And then that's a time when, you know, they're picky often, you know, about foods just developmentally. And so it makes that whole cycle even worse. And so we talked about where some families seek help, their maternal child health nurse, their GP, their dietitian. Are there any other people who are involved in helping kids who are fussy or extremely fussy eaters? Yeah, look, other health, um, allied health professionals can be really invaluable. So, I mean, some children will have underlying problems with swallowing or, or um, approaching different tastes and textures um, as part of, of other sort of um, sensory awareness issues. And so um, input from a speech pathologist can be very helpful um, or occupational therapists. Where it's a more sustained thing um, or there's other kind of concerns, then sometimes a psychologist um, can be really helpful. So we've got a couple of questions now from listeners, Kathleen, so we might just fire these at you to get your advice while we've got you here in the hot seat. First one, and this comes up a lot, is it okay to have TV or iPad or some sort of screen to distract my child while they're eating? Generally, I think that mealtime should be about family and about communication, yeah, and it's about that role model aspect. And I think that um, you know, it's a social engagement, it's a social time. So um, generally I would recommend no. I think that sitting down with their siblings, with the parents, having a conversation, eating a meal is what we generally advise. So screens away, TV off. Yeah, yeah. And talk about your days. Like I think sometimes, you know, everyone's busy and, and a lot of the time these days that's the only time that families come together in a whole day. We're all busy. Um, it's a time when people can come to, together. And so just tell me about your day, you know, or what happened today. Great. Okay, next one. What about slow eaters? So someone said they've got a child who's just frustratingly slow. How long is too long? Do you let them sit at the table for an hour? At what point do you say enough's enough? Yeah, about 20 to 30 minutes. Okay, so I think 20 minutes is sort of wrapping it up. And then by 30 minutes, really, it's time to clear the table. Because if they haven't eaten by then, then, you know, they're probably not going to eat that much more. They're just moving the peas around on the plate. Yeah. 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 What about the children who are too tired at dinner time to eat? Yeah, look, I think if that's a recurrent issue, then maybe you need to bring mealtimes forwards, yeah, or or work on things like um, making after-school snacks a more substantial kind of meal where you actually give them a sort of cooked meal at four o'clock in the afternoon and then dinner is more of a sort of snacky thing. You can do things like that, you know, switch it around to to work what works for your family, but... um, it's it's setting kids up in a way to fail. You know, if someone asked us to sit at the table when we're really, really tired and to eat a plate of stuff that we've never seen before and it looks funny and, and it's all mushy and, you know, we don't like the look of it. Like, I, I think a lot of adults wouldn't like that either. Absolutely. Another listener question, should I avoid certain foods in my child? Generally not. The tendency these days is a lot of, um, you know shifts towards removing whole food groups from diets and things like that. I think if you're going to do that in a child, it's good to have a discussion with a health professional beforehand. Another question, what about ready-made foods or pre-packaged and processed foods? So again, recently on the RCH poll, we asked parents about this for toddlers and around half of Aussie toddlers are having some sort of ready-made food pretty regularly in their diet. What's your recommendation for parents about that? 
Yeah, the reality is we all lead very busy lives and and a lot of families have, you know, two working carers, um, you know, kids at school, you come home, everyone's tired and you're trying to avoid that situation where you're too tired to eat and the kids get, you know, grumpy in the evenings. I think sometimes just trying to think ahead can be helpful. So, you know, on the weekends, cooking up some extra food and putting it in the freezer um, is, is a really useful strategy. Everyone has times where they have some processed food, but I think it's good to try and make that a sometimes rather than an all the time. Yeah. One of the things that I got some great advice from a dietitian recently about was how to interpret the nutrition information panel on the back of the packets to help you make a choice around some of these ready-made foods. So as you say, convenience is the biggest reason why parents are choosing these options and we're all busy mums and parents ourselves and this is going to be part of a regular diet. It's not about get back to the kitchen and cook everything from scratch. But not all these products are the same. Some are healthier options than others. Mm. So... um, People listening might find it helpful to think about the ingredients list. The most um, common ingredient in that product has to be listed first. So if you're buying bolognese, for example, and you look and it's not tomato, and it's not <laughs> you know meat of any sort or a vegetable, but maybe it's pear or apple that's listed first, then perhaps that's a product that's actually contained a lot of fruit to try and sweeten it and it might not be as nutritious as you expect. So that can be a really helpful guide for parents. And then the other thing is the nutrition information panel. So the, the box on the back of the packet does feel like you need a science degree and a calculator sometimes, but the sugar... Um, listing on that is really helpful and important sometimes for parents as well to have a look and see how many grams of sugar are in products, remembering that four grams is about a teaspoon Mm. and sometimes a a pouch of yoghurt or, you know, a fruit-type snack could have 30 grams of sugar in it quite easily and so there's going to be about seven teaspoons in that one snack. So can be helpful when thinking, okay, how am I going to add this into the mix of things, as you say, Kathleen, in moderation and maybe thinking which product might be a better choice when when you're purchasing. And I often say, if you can give your child a food that's as close to its natural form as possible, that will be great for them because it's really hard to read the back of those packs and we're all time poor parents as well. Yeah, and one of the things, if you are going to have a meal like that, you know, you you can just get some carrots and cucumber or some little cherry tomatoes and throw a handful of that stuff together Alongside, and have a yeah. little bowl of that in the middle of the table as well. And, and then that takes, you know, you can pre-prepare that kind of stuff a few days ahead and have a big container in the fridge or, you know, it takes less than five minutes really to chop up a carrot um, and, and some fresh vegetables. And I think we forgot to mention before, involving the kids in the shopping, in the prep, in the kitchen, holding a safe knife and cutting some of the vegetables, that's really important because as you said, it's that desensitisation, the smelling, the tasting, the touching that will often occur before they actually take a bite of a food. Completely. Yeah. No, I think, you know, taking them to the market, taking them to the supermarket, you know, getting out in the garden and planting some seeds and see if they grow or all those kind of things are so important to just see the different aspects of food. Yeah. And I think the programs that go into schools now and grow vegetables with the kids and then they go and um, create meals with them. I think that's been incredible for children to see. Yeah. And obviously as toddlers, there are still ways you can do that safely and get them involved in things in the kitchen. You might not think of it easily because you often think of cooking as hot surfaces and sharp knives, but, you know, giving kids something to actually hold and touch and help you with. We've just been talking about 
children in the community who are fussy eaters or picky eaters and when to worry and seek help. But as paediatricians and gastroenterologists, we're seeing children who have much more difficult issues um, in hospital. And children with autism, it's often very common for them to have issues um, with eating different textures, different tastes. Do you see that in your clinic? Absolutely, absolutely. And and I think going back to what I said earlier, sometimes it's there because that's why they're referred, but sometimes it's there because you ask, you know, and um, it's not sort of reported, and, but you ask and you realise that, that meal times in this house are a really difficult time and that eating is a very challenging um, thing within the family household. So why is it that fussy or picky eating is more common in, in kids with autism? Yeah, it's a really interesting question and I don't think it's straightforward, the answer. You know, it's it's linked in with the fact that um, often children with autism may have fairly fixed beliefs or behaviours surrounding things and, and those things apply to include food and what they put inside their body, yeah. And it also relates to their... Um, I guess, understanding and feelings about, you know, the sensory aspects. So we know that food is not just about the knowing what you're eating. It's about the taste of it. It's about the texture of it. It's the consistency. It's the temperature. All those different things, you know, are it's a sensory experience. And then kids with autism often as well do tend to have, um, and it's hard to know what's the chicken, what's the egg, but they may have constipation. They may have, you know, other gastrointestinal kind of concerns or issues that might kind of feed into that and, and, you know, also reduce their appetite or impair their appetite. As a gastroenterologist, I can't help but ask you, are there common gastrointestinal issues uh, that you see that cause fussy eating? I think that one of the more common things we would see in um, fussy eating can sometimes relate to children who are born premature. Um, and that's a lot of it may be just a delay in their skill acquisition because they've had a long time, a long period, you know, often in hospital. They may have needed some tube feeds. They may have had to have been fed in a different way. And, and so they've not gone through that normal developmental progression potentially in the first year of life, which is a bit of a window period. And and so often they can catch up, but they may need more support and they might need parents to kind of adjust their principles or adjust the way that we're approaching things to allow them to reach their um, development, you know, in their own time. How often would, you know, avoidant or fussy eating relate to a genuine allergy or intolerance for a child? I think one of the things we need to just remember is that a lot of these things happen and they're, they're short-lived or they're transient and then they settle. You know, I think if parents see something and it's a pattern of behaviour or that lasts over a persistent period of time, so I'm talking weeks to months, you know, and it doesn't seem to be getting better or it may seem to be getting worse or it seems to be a um, repeated kind of reaction or, you know, to a certain food, then then that's a prompt to go and see someone and, and discuss that rather than just trying to make too many adjustments to the diet by yourself or it's better off if we can. And, and I say that because we try and avoid highly restricted diets where we can in childhood because we know that, you know, kids are undergoing a huge period of growth development and, and nutrition is so important for all of that. Such great advice, Kathleen. You've shared so many things today. I'm sure that the listeners have found it useful. I've certainly learnt a lot, Lexi. Absolutely. There's some more information we're going to link in our show notes. And if you would like to go to the RCH Kids Health Info webpage, we'll have a lot of useful information there as well. Kathleen, that's been incredibly helpful. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your tips and tricks about how to manage fussy eaters. 
Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and even better, leave us a review. And thanks for listening. Information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended to support, not replace, discussions with your doctor or healthcare professional. If you are concerned about your child, please consult your local healthcare professional for further advice.